Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, you Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, what's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. 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 Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. I heard about Papa Joe about 10 years before I met him. He had left the scene of storytelling just as I was beginning in New Hampshire. I was constantly asked, do you know, have you heard of Papa Joe? The answer for me was always no, but who is he? Then he reappeared and we met and we became fast friends. Papa Joe once travelled all over the US telling stories. He had a team of people working for him, booking gigs, sending him everywhere. Now he spends most of his time around New England, telling tales to anyone who will listen, from schools, preschools, adults, music venues, to telling stories on the street. Although he tells great adult stories, children love Papa Joe, and maybe you'll understand why by the end of this conversation. Sit down and enjoy my chat with my friend, Papa Joe Gordet. I am sitting in my living room with my good friend and fellow storyteller, Papa Joe. Hi, Papa Joe. Hi, Simon. Good to be here. It's good to have you here. And we've also got Mo, my wonderful little dog. She's also sitting here with us, sitting on the couch. Well, she's not, but we are. So, Papa Joe, you've been telling stories for a long time. How many years do you think you've been telling stories for? Well, the first story I remember telling, I was three, so I'm going to say 67 years. <laughs> but I might have been telling stories before that, I just don't remember. Okay. <laughs> are, you, are you asking about, how, you know, I told stories all my life. I told okay. stories to my little brother when um, we were asleep, we had to share a bed, uh -huh. and he wouldn't go to sleep at night. So I would make up stories about Pogo Possum, which I had seen in the Sunday Funnies. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, tell him stories until he passed out and I would just make them up it didn't even matter and uh but my mom told stories and so I had all that whole bank in fact last night at um the Concord Story Circle I told the Green Gorilla which is a story I learned in third grade but I most recently heard it three weeks ago in Rochester New Hampshire in a trailer park where a little boy said to his mother, Mama, 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 tell him the story of the green gorilla. <laughs> it's an old shaggy dog. Um, and some of the people I've shared it with are 90. So I wow. obviously has been going around for a long, long time. Yeah, that's really cool. Is that one of your favorite stories or is it just one that you've that's yeah. resurfaced? Right, so favorite is a really hard word. I mean, I have favorites, I suppose, this month. Yeah. <laughs> I always liken stories to food. It depends on what kind of mood you're in and what the weather is. And Absolutely. Who right. you're with and all that kind of stuff. And, and when you find a story after not being exposed to it for a very long time, that's kind of an exciting thing. It, it brings back all the memories of, of the, the history that you have with the story, and, and it's all new again because you haven't done, done it in a while. That's so cool. I love that. So you, you, you mentioned your younger brother, but he, he, he's not your only sibling. You grew up with quite a few. Yeah, I'm fire. number seven of ten. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is... It's good reason that my mom was a storyteller. We would pack all, all those 12 people into a car and drive them someplace. So we sang and told stories for hours and hours and hours. And, and that's, that's cool. <laughs> so was your mother the main storyteller? Did your dad tell stories? Or was it most of your mom? Um, my dad didn't talk that much. In fact, we hardly knew well, him to speak kids. at all. 
<laughs> my mom talked a lot and yeah. and people used to say well how how would he ever have time <laughs> because she was the talker yeah. um so i'd say she was the main storyteller uh, he did tell me stories of you know of course once i became a professional storyteller i i mined him for stories and mostly the stories were about his youth when he was a kid like driving the uh vegetable wagon through the streets of Andover, Massachusetts, hauling out to set, you know, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. Oh, wow. When he was a child, I mean, we're talking about, he was like seven years old driving a, a team of horses, pulling a wagon. Wow. Seven horses. <laughs> yeah. How old? Seven? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was That's his, his crazy. part in helping the family. So, you, but you weren't originally from Massachusetts, right? Isn't your family from Maine? Your heritage? So the heritage is the East Coast from Plymouth North all the way up through Canada. We, okay. we, we, I have um, cousins and ancestors that have pretty much the entire coast. So oh, okay. And, and into Quebec. But most, most of the... Uh, my father is a Tignishacadian, okay. which is pretty specific. Right. Um, my mother is a mongrel with uh, Puritan lines. Um, the most recent additions to North America is a little French line called Bothamy, which was her father's father's father. Everybody else is from 1600s or later. Wow. Or earlier, I mean. Right. Um, we have five native lines. It's, it's all very much North American. <laughs> very much North American. So you, you, you're... You're one of ten siblings. Your father used to do grocery work, so presumably your grandparents did that. So, but uh, but I know that your grand your dad went into construction or rock, so working with rocks. When I say Tignishacadian, that uh -huh. if if you actually knew about the culture, you would know that those people did not have specific jobs. They okay. did everything. All right. So the whole reason that that particular branch of the family came to the United States was because taxes, you needed to have some cash and right. there wasn't any. So what they would do is when it came time to have some cash reserves when they were totally out, right. they would head south, go to Maine, get jobs in the uh, shoe factories in Maine and make some money and once they had enough money to last them they'd head back up to the farms and they'd live on the farm for years and years and years until that money supply dwindled out because basically they made built did everything they needed so they were carpenters wow. and stonemasons and fishermen and farmers and they didn't consider themselves any of that stuff they were just people right. so they're real renaissance a renaissance culture and um so my grandfather was born in Maine and my grandmother was born in Maine and they were born really not too far from each other mm -hmm. and they didn't know each other. But they were both Tignish Acadians. So at, when they grew up in Tignish, one day they met, they fell in love, they turned 18, they got married and they said, why live here when we could just go down to the United States and, and live a modern life? Mm -hmm. um, and my father's mother said, oh, go to Andover. I had a job there once. It was wonderful. <laughs> so they went. Um, That's how we, they ended up in Andover, Mass. Andover, Massachusetts, right? right? Yeah. So then they, they got a place. They rented a place up on Elm Street, just out of town. Uh -huh. My father was born there. They finally got up enough money to build, buy their house on Cuba Street. They bought a little farm, and they raised them there. And I say they bought a little farm, but <clears throat> that was just because they had to have a farm. Where else would you grow your apples to make your apple cider and your vegetables to put in your kitchen? So you need to have enough land in order to do that. So their whole goal was get out of this little apartment and get back to a place where we can have some space so and raise our, grow yeah. our children. And um, But what my grandfather did was work for the town. And he wasn't really good politically the Irish and the and the French Canadians and different cultural groups were sort of like pushing for power thing and at one point he split off and just started his own construction company basically and they called it um, contracting uh -huh. back then so he okay. was a contractor um, 
and he had his farm. Right. But right. so my father was raised up on the farm working in contracting. But back then they did everything. They did the electrical, right. they did the plumbing, they did the dynamiting. And so my father used to say, well, we used to do everything, but as time went on, they made up rules and laws and then we'd have to get permits and we'd just drop that part of the trade. <laughs> so he could do anything. In fact, built a playground in our backyard. We had merry-go-rounds, swing sets, jungle gyms, playhouses, all this stuff that he made out of scraps, either from the, the, from the jobs. jobs that he was working on, or back then we'd go to the dump and right. he'd bring out of the dump almost as much stuff as he would drop off. But yeah. this stuff would not be you know, trash. It would be stuff that he would be repurposing right. into That's very New house. England even now. In, in a lot of towns. Oh yeah, uh, very yeah. much so. Yeah, I know because, here, in, here in New London we have, we, we call it our, our market. Right. <laughs> the oh, dump is the market. It's always know. sad to me when they close that out and say, oh no, you can't pick for the dump. <laughs> <But> <laughs> My first bicycle was actually four different bicycles that he put together for me and um I think my, my first uh, bike was probably stuff. a bit like that. Made of cast iron with almost round wheels. Brakes that worked when you put your feet down. <laughs> yeah. I had a regular seat, but those... Um, Cow horn handlebars? Big handlebars. Yeah. Uh, I, I pretended it was a Stingray bicycle like you would see on the commercials. <laughs> right. Um, so so you, you, when you were when you were growing up, your father was knew how to do every, your grandfather knew how to do everything he taught your father how to do everything and presumably your father taught you how to do everything as well yeah and in, in a roundabout way because he would do everything and so right. we would just do it with him right and when we were kids when when i was a really young child right. it, people didn't think that children shouldn't work and my parents certainly didn't think that children shouldn't work mm -hmm. um so my first memories, I'm like three years old, and I'm old enough to hold a shovel. So when wintertime comes, and my father is making less cash, right. all the seniors that are down the street that needed their shovels, or their, yep. their driveways or, or walkways shoveled, yep. we would just go out and we would do that. He'd just tell us which houses we were going to, and then he'd break us up into teams and send us out. Wow. So I remember having a shovel and shuffling before I could actually do that job simply because what else are you going to do with all these kids? Right. You can leave them home with mom who has a lot of work to do yeah. and would appreciate if you could make less or you right. can leave a kid behind to help her but then you have one less worker. Right. Or you can give him a shovel and let him think he's doing some work and next right. year maybe he can. Right. So when, when my father first brought me down to the shop Mm -hmm. He handed me a hammer, the smallest um, claw hammer he had, and he says, if you hold it like this, uh, right underneath the claw, right. I'll pay you 25 cents mm -hmm. an hour. If you hold it like this, about halfway down, I'll pay you 50 cents an hour. But if you hold it like this, holding it at the bottom of the handle, mm -hmm. I'll give you a dollar an hour. Because in order to hold it like that, you have to be strong enough to swing it that way and yeah. therefore he figures that's how he, he keep track of it so I learned to swing a handle hammer thinking that I'm going to get a whole you know dollar an hour eventually yeah <clears throat> that's pretty cool so what, what were the stories that your mother told you when you were a kid and what were the stories that you mind your father for when you when you started storytelling profession yeah such a different group of things. I was guessing yeah I was guessing. so my mom learned to tell stories by taking her brothers and sisters younger brothers and sisters mm -hmm. into the park in, in Boston right to listen to the storytellers that back in the 30s the Boston Public Library would send storytellers out to the parks in the summertime oh really so the list of stories are exactly the list of stories of the storytellers from the libraries in the 30s um, I've actually dug up, found some notes and things on that. It's incredible. It looks like my mom's set list. Wow. <laughs> so a lot of Joseph Jacobs, right. English fairy tales, more right. English fairy tales, Celtic fairy tales, a lot of Joseph Jacobs. Well, um, not so much in the Grimm then? 
Yeah, Grimm's not really. I I don't feel that Grimm is a real great um, English language source for stories. I mean, you really have to rework those. Yeah. Um, to make them, to put them into that that style. The other thing is, back in the '30s, we still had those people that had been telling stories from the 1800s. Yes. There was a good, strong story culture. So I learned stories. Um, that hadn't been written down yet. Do you still tell some of those stories? Oh yeah, oh yeah, stories like uh, Tiki Tiki Tembo. Tiki Tiki Tembo wasn't published until the 60s. I was telling it before it was published. Oh yeah, check it out. All right, <laughs> I, I believe you, I believe you. So, so one of the things that like, I always think about when, you, when, you've, when we've talked before about you're growing up in the... the you case. asked, there was the second half of that yes, question. Yes, there was. I'm sorry, your you, father. Do you want me to do that? Yes, I do. <laughs> My dad tells personal tales. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he tells stories about driving the wagon through the streets and, right. and calling out for vegetables and, and the difficulties of getting down Essex Street with, with the wagon because it was such a steep hill. Because he lived up on Cuba Street, which was on the other side of the river. So okay. to get to town, he would have to come down the hill, down to the river, up Essex Street to, to town. Um, told about getting kicked by a horse as, as a child. Um, and how his father beat the horse afterward and uh, then got rid of it because it, um, but stories like that how he had a little white dog and he had cats that had no tails that's so really really marvelous stories it, it's he really grew up in a different world than what I could imagine certainly than us and then I, again, I kind of feel like I lived in a different world as most of most of my peers because when I when I was a child, most of the people I knew had money, <laughs> and we did not. Right. Um, but we lived very well. We always had plenty of food. My father was not a uh, ambitious man. Right. All his goal was goal was was just to provide for his family. It, the idea of making money it, it was just foreign to him. So he grew vegetables and we had plenty to eat. He, he actually grafted apples. He, he went to Essex Aggie uh, for high school because he wanted more to know about how to, how to deal with plants than what to do with math. Um, although he was pretty darn good at that too. Yeah, um, well I guess if you're in construction you need to be. Right, he could pour a floor and have exactly the right amount of concrete. Never, that was never an issue. And I don't think he used a slide ruler either. <laughs> slide rules, so, that's a good. Those are the kind of stories he would tell, mostly um, stories about his youth. Huh. So, w when you were growing up doing all the things that you were doing, which were all the things that your parents did and all the things that your grandparents did. Like digging graves? That was one of my first jobs, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, we had the contract at, at the local cemeteries. Oh, wow. It's a contractors. It didn't matter what you did. Yeah. We did everything. Um, we uh, poured the forms and put, poured the, put the sand in for the local pond that they were making a swimming area called Pompsa Pond in Andover. We basically built the uh, Pompsa Pond back when, when you could do stuff to water without worrying about state permitting. Right. So the town wanted to have a, a better beach, and they hired my family to produce that. We just did that. We built, um, my, my grandfather had a shop down on the Sarsheen River, so my father bought the chicken coop next door. Okay. My grandfather said, well, we don't need two, <laughs> and he sold off his shop. But the chicken coop had a sharp pitch into the river, and Wilson Concrete was right up the street. So my grandfather said to Wilson, hey, you need to clean out the concrete from your trucks after the jobs. Take it down there, I'll put up forms. You can just dump all the concrete. I don't care how much you, you know, when or what kind of concrete it is. And we built, we tripled the amount of land that we had simply by pouring concrete all over the bank of the river into forms. Wow. And so it's still there now at the it bottom is. of Essex Street. You can go, it's the second 
thing down. There's no chicken coop there anymore. They just mm. park vehicles. But they park vehicles on oh. Wilson concrete that we put in over the course of decades. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you can pour concrete into the riverbanks anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yes, I think that's fair <clears throat> So I wonder how this all connects with your Vardo. And for people that don't know what a Vardo is. Oh, Vado is a ROM word, which we be like gypsy. It's, right. it's the language of the people, the ROM. It, and uh, Vado just means house on wheels. So um, it fits my lifestyle. And there certainly is plenty of, of history to that. I mean, how do you take 10 kids on vacation? My father said, ah, I'll buy a school bus. So he bought an old school bus converted it into what would be an RV nowadays right. with uh, four bunks, triple bunks, so that he could fit 12 people into them. Um, turned a couple of seats around and made seating for 12 in the front, triple bunks back. in the back, a little pot. The bathroom stuff was certainly not as fancy as it would be these days. It was just a pot. Yeah. And a little closet that so you could at least have a little privacy. Um, he put in a little gas stove and a, and a little cooler spot. We had no refrigerator. Right. And that way we could go on vacation. And sometimes he would uh, drive us up to the mountains and my mom would follow in the car. And then he could drive home and go to work and we could stay up there for a couple of weeks. Would these be the white, white mountains? White mountains, New right. New we Hampshire. spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. It was a, was a beautiful place then and it is still. It is. Um, and one time we went, drove out to Hawaii. Ah, uh, not Hawaii. For, to Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he made chitty chitty bang bang into a school bus. I mean, a school yeah. bus. Yeah. So uh, we went to Ohio, and so we drove across wow. what I thought was like the world to get out there to Flat Rock, Ohio. I bet it felt like in a bus with all those siblings. Yeah, so I remember sitting at the back door because we didn't have seatbelts back then. Thank God we never have survived with seatbelts. So you had the door open, dangling your feet as you're bouncing down the road? No, no, not that time. Um, but playing with my little farm animals okay. <laughs> in the back of the school bus, basically what would be the aisle yeah. out by the emergency door. Just hanging out there playing as we drove across the country. So did you, did you learn musical instruments from your parents or from your mom? Or? No. No, we just sang. There okay. was no room for musical instruments in the car. Right. Twelve people. Right. <laughs> um, my brother Johnny played guitar for a while. I remember that. And a couple of other siblings did that, too. Um, my sister, my oldest sister, Dodie, had uh, a guy that played recorders. And that always impressed me. Um, so, Presumably different kinds, not just the the one from school that you get in sixth grade? Or no, no, I mean real grade. recorders, wooden recorders in all okay. five sizes. So okay. I got to meet the, the soprano, soprano, the tenor, the alto, and the bass, um, and which I own all of them now. I really only play the tenor, but um, that huge. really set that into my head. I, I loved them. I thought they made beautiful music. And the stuff they do at school those cheap plastic recorders is, and then they only have the children play long enough to do a, um, what is it? The, uh, one show and then they say okay we're moving on to other things yeah. it's really sad because it does, it, people's impression Muffin of what, man right? right <laughs> the impressions of, of what recorders sound like is, yeah. is what most people think is third graders right. whereas it's gorgeous music yeah I, I like I like what you play very much so maybe you could record, we could record you playing some... Some Christmas carols. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure when I'll I, be... I only get out. to play them in December. I, once in a while I can slip one in and people go, Was that a Christmas carol? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Christmas in July. So, <laughs> so the Vardo, how, how did you get into being in the Vardo in your well, house on wheels? When I first started... As an adult, I hitchhiked. I had a backpack with a um, tent and a bag and everything I needed. And I basically traveled living out of my backpack. Mm -hmm. um, when I had kids, that ended. You know, I, I would, sometimes my wife would take the kids and I would meet her there by hitchhiking because I just 
couldn't stop. <laughs> um, later on, I, I had trucks, right. and I would build into them a sleeping compartment that would do double as a place to put long-handled shovels and things like that. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> when I became a storyteller, uh -huh. I found myself sleeping on the road more and more often, and then you want to be comfortable. Yeah. So I had a friend that had built a box to live in on the back of his pickup truck right. and we had the same kind of pickup truck oh okay so I offered him 75 bucks for it when his truck broke down and he wasn't repairing it because what else was he going to do with it and so that was probably technically my first real Vardo that you know you could actually stay in and uh I had that for quite a while um I think like 300,000 miles. Wow. And then uh, when that died, I got a micro mini RV. And that actually had a shower in it and a kitchen. It was a real upgrade. And my, my, my <laughs> wife really liked those things a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, and then after that, well, my mechanic would say, because, you know, I, I really drove everything into the ground. 300,000 miles is about the short end of usage. So he's replacing engines and transmissions, and he's like, why do you build these houses on the back of pickup trucks? Why don't you just get a van? They're already enclosed and you can do it. And I was thinking, nah, that, why would I do that when I can have much better space than I do? And, uh, but eventually I did get to a place where I needed to keep the cost down and I picked up a minivan mm -hmm. and found that you can convert them into rooms it works really well i mean you, you have to be real, right now right right the uh dodge uh grand caravan as a matter of fact yeah. um what it, was the one that you put an extra three hundred thousand miles on what was the first truck was that chevy dodge ford so <clears throat> the first vardo was the my big blue box that was a um that was a dodge ram the little dodge ram the second thing, it was a Datsun. Oh, really? Datsun pickup truck. And the third one, I think, was a Dakota. What's whatever brand that is? I can't think either. I know what you mean, though. Yeah. Dodge? That's a Dodge. Oh, Dodge maybe Dakota. it wasn't a Dakota. I, I try to remember. But, yeah. I, I, anyway. Doesn't matter. <laughs> with the vans, I, I started out with a... Um, Sienna, that's a Toyota Sienna. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody was had one of those conversion vans. They said that they'd give me for a thousand dollars, and it looked really good. So I for a thousand dollars, I said I'll do that. And uh, after I sunk four thousand dollars into it without getting through the first year, Ouch. I changed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I went back to the minivan. I bought this Grand Caravan, and. Uh, <clears throat> I've put 10,000 miles on it since last summer. And I do a lot of driving. <laughs> you do. It's true. It's true. So you were in the military for how many years? Four. Four, Four years. Four years. And That's you served as a... 71 Mike, Chapel Activity Specialist. But, you know, it's, it's kind of a strange title for a job. So when I tested the ASFAP, they said, oh my goodness, you can take any job you want. And I went through the book to find something that would give me the freedoms that I was looking for. Um, I wanted a job that allowed me time outside as well as something that would occupy my mind. Right. And um, there were skill identifiers applied to different jobs. And 71 Mike had a skill identifier for a paracounselor. Okay but I could be assigned to a unit, which meant I could go to the field. Right. So I could actually work in psychology, which is what I wanted to do at the time. I mean, the primary goal of going in the military was to get a college education. So I went before the um, current GI bills, back when they basically gave, wrote a check and said, go to school. Right. So I um, enlisted for that and, wor and worked on my degree while I was in the military and um, also worked in the field by being a paracounselor. But it was not fun. It's not a fun place to be. If you do not want to be in the Army, you should not. <laughs> 
be in the army. Right. That makes perfect sense. But it gave you a really good background in, in psychology, presumably. It, it told me that I didn't want to be a psychologist, actually. I okay. fi- pretty much figured that out in the first few years, um, which is why I changed my orientation, worked on educational psychology. Okay. I, I originally thought I would be a clinic, clinician, and right. that's I, I realized quickly that I did not have that that ability to to deal with people's pain that deeply for long periods of time. Whereas I learned really quickly also that really most of the problems occur from childhood. You know, basically you get into situations and you don't handle them well. It turns on switches in your brain and creates these psychological issues that you can't deal with later on very well. Right. So if you could just teach children how to talk, communicate better, that you could alleviate a lot of the sufferings of their adulthood. So I started developing a program for that, which people mistook for me being a storyteller. <laughs> so, um, the, so you, you you were using storytelling then? Oh yeah, story stories, games, songs, folk, in in general. I mean, community is really building community is really important for mental hygiene. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I basically used folk traditional things to help children communicate and develop relationships that's so cool it, it was really cool in fact it still is I still get yeah. people that say yes come do that at my school and do you get to do it at other at schools now still yes I do and do you do you perform more or do you workshop more or is it like 50-50 you know I don't see it that way so I'm going to say I perform more because that's how they see it, how people see it. I, right. I, I am much more holistic with my art. I, I am a storyteller, and, yeah. and that is my mastery. But right. that's why I call myself a storyteller. Right. At the same time, I'm a poet. Yeah. I'm a musician, although I've just only started accepting that role. <laughs> um, I'm a sculptor. I do... I sculpt. I, I actually carve stone, and I would say the Vardos are sculptures in themselves when, yeah, when I, yeah. can I can see that. actually get time to build them. Um, <clears throat> I felt, which may be considered a craft, but the way I do it is far more, I'm doing pictures on clothing. And uh, same with my sewing, you know, I, I, you could say that I sew, but I hand sew and I don't just stitch up something. I make fancy patches that I think will go really well and do a good job. So, I mean, I see art much more holistically than workshop or performance. So my performances are workshops. I'm teaching the stories as I tell them because I think it's really important for us to pass our stories on. And so when I tell, I'm teaching and really strongly requiring, you know, the, the best audience are audience that invest in the program. Right. So that's basically what I'm doing when I'm, I'm doing a performance. I'm trying to find ways to help the audience invest in the, in the program, which means they're learning the stories. Right, because you do a lot of participation. Yes. An awful lot of participation. If, as much as I can do. I right. mean, if I if I had my way, I wouldn't be talking at all. I'd have them up there doing the the program. <laughs> they just haven't learned how to do it yet. So <laughs> you just pushed them in the right direction. So I I tell my granddaughter stories when I when I visit. Right. Um, do bedtime stories every night that I can be there. Um, but these days I don't necessarily tell the stories. Sometimes she does, and she tells me back the stories that she loves from the stories that I taught her and when I have a new story that I pick up I say oh I, I did a new story this week she should listen to that and two weeks from now I will not be telling a story because she'll be telling that story back that's so neat I it, love it's stuff awesome. like that I love stuff like that so I'm like it. I'm saying it's it's the event is bedtime story by Papa Joe basically right. but it might not be me doing the story because she is my um 
ex perfect student yeah. and, and she is, she'll she just take over right she'll yeah. be the storyteller some nights tonight I'm telling a story papa okay <laughs> that's so neat so w when did you discover that you were bone flesh sinew cartilage a storyteller <laughs> and that that's what you were going to spend the rest of your life doing so I needed money and people started inviting me to do stories and they were going to pay me like 50 bucks an hour. <laughs> that's, that's, more than, that's more than I was getting when I started, that's for sure. Right, the, the, the first gig was that, 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 oh, we'll pay you 50 bucks if you had come and tell stories for us. And it wasn't even an hour either, I mean, but that's how you see it. And right. uh, <clears throat> yeah. And they were calling me Papa Joe the Storyteller, so... Was that a name they, the librarians gave you, or, or how did that come around? So my, my kids called me Papa. Okay. The neighborhood kids wanted to call me Papa. My kids refused to let them do that. They were in an argument, and the resol resolution was that the neighborhood kids could call me Papa Joe. Okay. The neighborhood kids were at the schools that I went to when I first started, they would scream, Papa Joe! Everybody at the school would call me Papa Joe. The parents are the ones that started calling up and saying, will you come tell stories at our place? I'd say, actually, I'm not a storyteller. I, I'm an educator. And I, they're like, yes, but you tell stories, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So my first business card said, Joseph P. Gaudet. Uh-huh. And nobody called me Joseph. Right. Everybody called me Papa Joe. And it's an Acadian tradition that you don't get really called by these names. They give you names like Joseph and John, and everybody has them. So you can't say, hey, Joe, because 27 people will turn their heads. I have more than a score of friends whose name is Joseph Gaudet. Wow. My grandparents were calling me Papa Joe before I turned 30. <laughs> Because it just became that yeah. was going to be my... That's your name, yeah. Right, D-name. It's, uh, like I said, a can Acadian tradition. So it just went really quickly. And I became Papa Joe. I didn't think to... I didn't really like it, actually, especially when I was in my 20s. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <clears throat> it was awkward, it, and it felt weird. It took a long time to grow into. But like storytelling, I couldn't imagine actually having a job being a storyteller. To me, storytelling was just something you did all the time. I mean, right. there's a bunch of kids around. They need something to do. They're kind of antsy. Tell them a story. Uh, you're doing a program and you need to get an idea across. Well, the best way? Tell a story. Yeah. You're teaching in, in the educational field. How do you teach things? <clears throat> well, you do a do story. So. Yeah. To me, that was, it was not a, an isolated thing, which is, gets back to that whole holistic type of approach. Yeah. So I became Papa Joe the Storyteller because that's what people saw me as. Right. To me. That's I'm, a great thing to be seen as. Yeah, I'm not complaining. <laughs> I, I think I am the luckiest person in the whole world and the richest also. I mean, my life is wonderful. My, I have thousands of friends who are excited to see me every time they do I, I have no complaints that's <laughs> richness indeed if you could this is a kind of a weird question if you could pick only one story to tell for the rest of your life you're going to hate this question what would it be so you know the story of, of three wishes in one <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, so moving on. <laughs> I would like to tell that story, the ocean of stories. Yeah, I don't know that story. The ocean of stories. The ocean of stories. If it's written down, if you buy the volume, it 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 will take up an entire wall. It's a huge collection of stories from. Um, I'm thinking it's it's from the subcontinent of India, but it might actually not be but I think it is India okay. you've so never heard of, of Ocean of Stories no so it's, it's, it's kind of like Thousand and One Nights then no Thousand and One Nights is a drip Compared. Ocean of Stories is, is an ocean, ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the tales you know 
are bits and pieces of that book. Really? I'm going to have to look into that. And our listeners will too. <laughs> um, all right. You, you must have met a lot of storytellers over the years. Yes. Both professional and, and regular, what we would call kitchen or porch or yeah. neighborhood tellers, yeah. Right. Who, outside of your family, because I, I know that your family was a huge influence on your stories, on the stories that you tell and the way that you tell probably, but outside of your family, is, is there a particular storyteller? Is there a single storyteller, a couple of storytellers that had a big impact on you? that had a big influence on you maybe? There was a um, Haitian teller down in New York City. He lived on the street, he was homeless. His name was Julian. I can't really tell you too much more about that. He lived in the Lower East Side and I assume he lived in the alley in which I met him. Um, he shared a lot of stories with me the week I was there and I tell those stories whenever I can and I he, he's in my head. Um, so. He had a lot of influence on me. What kind of influence was it? Well, I... He, other than just the story, I mean, was there another... Um, other than you getting the stories from him, what what kind of impact did he have on your well, storytelling? The whole idea of, of stories being just part of your life, that it you don't need to have, you know, a time and a place. It's always times and places. You just have to look for them. Um, the fact that the, the stories are physical when you tell them, you, you, your whole body responds to that. And he, he helped a lot with that. <clears throat> when I first started exploring the professional storytelling line, I was mm -hmm. running into things like the Toronto Storytelling School. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a few that say, if you're doing storytelling that you need to only use your voice to tell the story and you shouldn't take on the characters you should let the story tell itself you know there are all these rules that they had and and it didn't fit into what my head was for storytelling and so uh, then i met tellers like len capral mm -hmm. um who embodies exactly what i talk about when i say you know what kind of a storyteller are you um his whole body responds when he tells if if he has a, a character leaping. You can see, even though he doesn't actually leap in the air, you can see his body shift and move as he as he describes that, as if he were leaping. And Joe Callahan's another one, although he's a lot of there's a lot of action like acting movements. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, so those people, Medicine Story, um, Medicine Story had a big influence on me because he was an older storyteller in New Hampshire who gave me a lot of time. Um, whenever I had a question, he never answered them. But, but he always, I always got my answer by the end of it. <laughs> okay. Just through conversations or right. from his stories? And stuff. Yeah, he would, he would tell a story or he would suggest that I learned a story. Ah. And one of the things I learned a long time ago was when you first start telling a story, you tell it because you love it. Right. But later on, after you've told it a thousand times, you start realizing that you love it because you're telling your story. You're in those characters. It's yeah. those parts of you that get put into those characters that make it the reason that you feel the need to tell it. And all of a sudden you'll say, oh my God, that's talking about that time when I lived through this part of my life yeah. and that's all in that story. That's how I make it alive is <clears throat> by actualizing the story into in, that part of your life, into yeah. those parts of my life. Yeah. I've, I've, there's a, there's a couple of stories that I told and I, and I wasn't really sure why I told them until like a year later. And I was like, Oh, I get it. <laughs> It's because this and this and this was going on. And that was resonating with me and that w that came out through the story. Yeah, so For a Wish, if you listen to it, it sounds like a story about um, how a kid became capitalistic. I mean, it, it 
roughly it, yeah. it is you know yeah. he he wants this thing and he can't have it so he does this in order to get the money to be able to do that and it turns out that's not good enough so he takes that thing that he just made and he he commercializes that to make more money and then that doesn't work for him because it's not the right thing still and so he just keeps doing that until he has a corporation basically an international corporation and has tons of money and he gets what he should be getting what he wanted all set up and he doesn't even need it anymore because he's built everything that he wanted so the end end answer is joey you're not stupid you you can't you can't think of any wishes because you already have everything you want and i do and i built it myself in order to get the things that i thought i wanted yeah and it's kind of wonderful actually yeah so the story even though it might sound like i'm not a capitalist obviously cause yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are definitely not a capitalist that's for sure no no objection i mean no? people, i don't have a problem with capitalists mm -hmm. but i i'm just not one of them yes <laughs> polar opposite what's the favorite part of your job what lights up your eyes i think i know the answer to this but i want to hear you say it <laughs> <laughs> wow do I have to pick one <laughs> yes <laughs> you know you it's, can pick it's one. pure joy I, I love telling stories I really love it I love that that whole transmission and I think it's the sharing the community that whole part of becoming one in a group of people so we're not no longer individual parts I really love that I really like awakening that elusive dragon that was going to be my next question. <laughs> the elusive dragon. You brought it up so perfectly. So, yeah, tell people about the elusive dragon. Well, I, I wish think, I could I think... remember where I, I learned that phrase, but okay. that was is going to be the 80s. So I was first studying storytelling, and, and one of the storytellers of the time, um, it could have been Diane Wolkstein or somebody else you know right. I don't know had said it's that moment when your audience and the storyteller are no longer in the place where the storytelling is going on but they're in the story so deep that you breathing the air that's the breath of the story um, it's the experience that's so shared that you no longer can isolate yourself from it and that's awakening that elusive dragon. It's and it basically becomes the goal, I think, of any storyteller, oh, is to get to that place. I mean, yeah. if you do it, it's successful, and if you don't do it, it's not that it's failed. It right. just it's just short of what you had hoped for. You're never really satisfied until it happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it doesn't happen every time. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I know that after I've had a, you know, some the winter's a quiet time for me, um, and I know sometimes in the spring, it's it's getting back on that on that horse and and you start to tell more and more stories and it's like oh, I've lost it, I've lost it, I've lost it, and then all of a sudden you do that gig, and you and the audience just become one and you're all in the story and there is nothing else there, and it's like no. I still got it. It's there. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, when, but when you, you got to get over that thinking you lost it I thing, because it's, it's, it, 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 it's not about you. It yeah. is a you're a part of it, right? But it's it's yeah. all the factors comes together perfectly. So there's a lot of science, brain science going on now, yeah. where they where they're hooking people up and putting them in into that kind of environment, and they say that the brains actually align. That yes, you, I've seen that actively connect the the all the participants and the teller and whatever one brain is doing the other ones are all doing right and they might as well be swinging a hammer well well that's what's happening in the story because the brain's lighting up like they were swinging a hammer and if they're supposed to be rowing then the brain's lighting up like they were rowing and it's throughout the whole group and when that's happening you know that's that moment that's the elusive, the elusive dragon, dragon. Yeah. yeah yeah when that physical connection occurs without even touching just through the words so i i know from personal experience that kids love you and i know also from personal experience that you really enjoy performing for kids 
that you there's nothing that will stop you from getting in front of a group of kids and telling stories and making their faces light up what what for you is the the difference between telling to a more adult audience and a much younger audience kids are easier it's easier for them to suspend their disbelief I mean I think that's really the only difference because I've got to tell you right now when I can do that what I do with kids uh -huh. to adults it feels just as good it's just harder to get to that place okay I see that yeah so, so I mean people are opportunists mm -hmm. and kids are an opportunity <laughs> It's true. It's true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I like that. What's the most rewarding work that you've done? Like, where was that? Was there, is there, is there something that you've done? In yeah, your life? The, again, you know, like I said, my, my basis of this was psychology. Mm -hmm. So early on, I came, a, came into a situation where I was working with a child who was, I think, five, had been molested by a family member and was nonverbal. Within three months, we had him as articulate as the other members of his class using storytelling as one of the major parts of that. That is about as rewarding as you can get when you can heal people using your art. It's simply amazing. So you wanna know the most rewarding? I would say that's it, is, is healing. So I was also going to ask you, which is the hardest? Was that would that be the same thing? I'm not sure what you mean by hard. Well, most challenging, <laughs> the most um, I don't know, the most grueling experience that you had as a storyteller. So having situations, environments that are not conducive to storytelling, mm -hmm. and trying to create that space within it, I would say that's the most difficult. Is is especially when the audience have no expectation. Street telling is really hard. And that's something that you do a lot. Right, it's, it's one of the ways I train myself is, is to put myself into situations where no one expects this and the place is not conducive to it and I'm going to make it work anyway. And it's taught me a great deal and helped me with, with issues, that, that kind of stuff. So when did you first start doing street storytelling? Formally, I mean, we're, we're talking about actually actively going out to do that, yeah. I would say about five or six years ago. Yeah. I tried it a few other times and, and it beat me back. <laughs> um, is that because you weren't ready for it or because it was too intimidating? And, and I use that word very lightly. Both, I would say. It, yeah. it, you know, you, you hate to fail yeah. and having people walk off all the time is, is not fun. Yeah. So I, certain, that is intimidating is to get up, to build up the, the level of, of confidence and energy you need in order to be a storyteller. I mean, you're basically saying, hey, I'm gonna talk and you're gonna listen. Right. That, that takes a lot of confidence. And in this day and age, that's really hard as well. Right, so. It's, I mean, not that I know anything about comedy, but it sounds, it sounds like a testing ground, similar to a testing ground of, of a stand-up comic. Right, which works much better in the street than storytelling. The problem, of course, is today people go, oh, you're, telling, you're saying something, we'll get it over with quick. So yeah. a stand-up comic has that advantage. They're only looking for a couple of lines, a couple of lines, and then if the person goes, ha, 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 they win. Yeah. Whereas I'm looking for them to stick around for a while, which is why I developed five, more three-minute stories so that I could ease them into the five. I mean, most of my stories before five years ago were 20 minutes or longer. Right. Now it's about half and half. And um, I have a lot of stuff that's under five minutes. Yeah, most of my stuff's like 10. 10 and up. A lot of 20 minute, 30 minute stories. I, I, yeah. the, the March and the, uh, the great stories. I mean, as a storyteller, you really want to be telling those those epic pieces. I do like those epic pieces. <laughs> There's just less call for them these days. Yeah. Less, less locations where you can pull them off. Yeah. So as far as difficulty goes, I mean, I, I would say that being in places where they don't expect you and getting them 
to appreciate it. Get them on board, yeah. If if there was a like we were talking about, you've met a lot of storytellers. Um, if if is there a storyteller that either living or dead, or a couple of storytellers living or dead? Let's pick one storyteller that's passed away and one storyteller that's living that you have not met that you would like to meet. That I haven't met. Yeah. I've met a lot of storytellers. I know you have. <laughs> oh, man. This is one of the great things about traveling is that I got to go to places and meet tellers and I people that I wanted to meet, I just set up so that I would. Um, so who's you? One right, dead, so, so that, that the gypsy storyteller from Great Britain. Um, oh, um, Duncan Williamson? That That is a person I never met and... It, it grieves me that yeah. I did not meet him. Um, Would you like to meet Taffy Thomas? He's he's so I I've heard him of him, but right. I I don't really know his work. So okay, right. he's he's kind of like the English version, I guess, or the Welsh version, I guess. Of yeah, so yeah, of course I would. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's fly over to England and meet Taffy Thomas. So there's a storyteller up in, in down in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gwen Ledbetter, <clears throat> I've heard about her for a long time. I've never met her. Um, I'm hopefully I'm going to go down there this winter and finally get to meet her. I've been writing to her um, emails for a couple of years now. A friend of mine, who was my one of my apprentices, he listened to her when he was a child, and she's a friend of his family's. Okay, so. So she's what you would call a porch teller, kitchen teller, or is she a professional storyteller? Or somewhere in between? Yeah. <clears throat> like many Appalachian tellers these days. I and mean, she's old now, so she doesn't do any touring. But she performed at Jonesboro in the 70s when it first started. Wow. She, I don't know that she's still, I don't think she's still doing it. because now Did you ever perform at the National Storytelling? You did, no? No, I have never performed there. <clears throat> I don't compete there's a lot of people trying for that stage and I'd like to see them get it <laughs> so why do I want to take away one of those spots it's not that I, I don't need any stage yeah you know I have plenty so people call up when they need me and that's a really good position to be in you know right and being able to the national stages do not need me they have lots of people <laughs> that's true they do they do if there was one person that you've that you've met and hung out with already, um, that you would like to sit down and swap stories with, like if somebody said, "We will hook you up with whomever you want to hook up with, and we'll put you wherever you want to be, so that you two could swap stories," who would that be, and why? <sighs> That's too much. I really can't do that. Um, <clears throat> there's or, a, or, or is there a list that's... As there's a list? huge list. Yeah. I mean, if, well, if who, I... Who would it be then? Well, Name some of those people. Well, up in um, Burlington, Vermont, for uh-huh. example, we were talking earlier about Tim. Jennings and Ponder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have sat down with Jennings, and it always... An incredible experience. We swap stories back and forth, and we 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 could just go on for days. Um, so I have that experience with him, Simon. I love swapping stories with you. I like swapping stories <clears throat> with you too. So and we do it fairly regularly too. Yeah. I I. What am I supposed to say, Andy Davis? I mean, I, I will stop in in Albany any time I'm going by if I can dig up a half an hour just yeah. to, in hopes that he's working on a new story that he'll say, oh, Papa Joe, oh, maybe I can work on this one. Do you mind sitting and listening? I'm like, yes, Andy, tell me another story. <laughs> I actually just sent him one of my Duncan Williamson books because he wants to learn more about Duncan Williamson. So in a couple of months after he's read some of these stories you should yeah, definitely yeah. get up there and see if he's got any down yet that's cool yeah you, you, the, the, there's just too many answers I yeah. mean I'm greedy 
<laughs> so you're a capitalist when it comes to that. <laughs> right. Well, how many people do you know to that go to four to six, sometimes eight circles a month? Yeah. Just to listen to what other storytellers are telling these days. Well, it's just you and Uncle George when Uncle George <clears throat> can do it, right? <laughs> What, what, if you had a piece of advice, because I know that you, you've also helped a lot of other storytellers, self-included. Um, you're very generous with your talent and your time. If, if there was somebody out there listening right now that you'd want to give them advice to, what would, what would the biggest piece of advice be to an up-and-coming storyteller? Yeah, if you want to be a storyteller, tell stories. If you want to be a better tell storyteller, tell more stories i mean it, it really is it people say well i've been practicing this story and i'm saying did you tell it to somebody or did you you know practice the words and if you're not telling the story to a person then you're not storytelling right. storytelling is a transmission from one person to another yeah. i'm not saying you shouldn't practice reading you know the the piece so you're familiar with it very well right. but the actual finding the words are not the words are not on your paper the words are in your mind and in that other person's mind so <clears throat> if you have a word written down on a piece of paper and you think that that word's going to carry your message it might but what if it doesn't right then you have to yeah. come up with another word and as time goes on the words change but the message doesn't. Right. That was one of the things that surprised me when I when I first started doing this. Um, you know, I there was one story in particular that that I was I told, and um, it was a, it was it's the it's the story of the goat from the hills and the mountains, which I found in a book called Taylor Abuelitos Told by Alma Flor Adder, and and. I loved the story and so I, I was telling it on and off for a whole summer and at the end of the summer I'm like I love this story so much I want to tell this a lot more often and so I wrote to them and said I can't find because I, I searched for another source of the story and I couldn't find another source of the story anywhere um, it's a, an Hispanic story Spanish story I think and I said I love this story can I tell it and I would love to put it on my next CD, and they were they were like, "Well, it, it, you haven't found any other sources. This is the only source. It's a published story in this book. We're not sure we, we could say yes because of the publisher." And I said, "Well, what if I sent you a recording of the story?" So I recorded the story, I performed it just live into a microphone like you and I are doing it right now, and I sent it to them on a CD. And they wrote back and said, we love what you have done with the story and the way that you've made it your own. Of course, you can keep telling it. And so far as like putting it on the CD, we need to talk to the publishers. And they did, and they let me do it, and blah, 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 blah. But when they said, we loved what you did with it, I th honestly thought I had done nothing to it. And I was, I wouldn't say verbatim, but very, very close to the original story. And when I re went back and read the story from the book I was like oh my gosh there are all these extra bits that are in there that I honestly didn't think that I put in there that are just magicked themselves into the story <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you're not in the place where the person that told that story originally was right so how could you tell the same story right right yeah so and stories mutate and change yeah stories are alive yeah right which ties in with the uh, native belief, the first Americans who say that you shouldn't put these stories in books and you shouldn't record these stories because then they become dead, stagnant. Yeah, I, I, I share some of that. I'm, I'm not quite as firm. I, I don't have a problem with capturing, I think they're like photographs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so that's a photograph of a, the of that story and it's from a particular time from a particular place and when it grows it's not going to be the same thing just like when you grew up you don't look like your first grade picture anymore yes right yes. but you are the same person right. I mean genetically genetically yeah we've all changed over the years yeah it's like taking a landscape picture right you can go back to that place 10 years later and it's 
different. Like that, your house where the chicken coop used to be. There's no chicken coop there now. It's right. a parking lot. From what right. Just and it, it used to go down to the river in one fell slide. And now it's got levels and levels and a set of stairs going down. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although... When I was a child, when we had first finished it, mm -hmm. it, it had really nice stairs, and now they're eroded in, in right. because of all the water that's run down through there, down to the river, has, has washed away a lot of that, those stairs. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of changes. Oh, also, the river used to be polluted when I was a little boy. <laughs> it's right. not polluted anymore. <laughs> Thank you so much indeed for all your time. It was absolutely fabulous talking with you. Always is. Always is, Simon. Always is. I'm always glad. And uh, thanks for sharing your memories and your thoughts and your passion for the rest of the world. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you very much. Have a, you have a great day. You too. Take care, Papa Joe. A huge thanks to my friend Papa Joe for popping in and hanging out for a morning. I hope you, my listeners, got to learn and feel that you know him and enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music for my podcast. Creating this show is very much a labour of love. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this through my Patreon website, my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Simon Brooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation, if you like a particular episode, will all help me reach out further and create more of these conversations. If you can, I know you can, leave a review on Stitcher or wherever else you found this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump on the interwebs and find out more about my guests, including Papa Jim. Follow them and me if you like. All of the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I sit down with them. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers, when the guest will be... Well, that's for me to know and for you to find out. Until next time, share one of your favourite stories. Take care.